We're going to return to Leviticus uh, chapter 11, uh, but as you see from the bulletin, uh, look at some other passages as well. Uh, Last Lord's Day, we considered this chapter, which introduced us to a key theme, uh, not just of Leviticus, but really of the scripture as a whole. And that is expressed in verses uh, 44 and 45, so let me begin uh, with reading those verses. For I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. We've seen then this command twice, just in these two verses. It'll be repeated a third time in chapter 19 of Leviticus and a fourth time in chapter 20. And so many people consider this the the theme for the book that is all about uh, being holy before God. And we saw last Lord's Day that that's reinforced by the narrative of chapter 10 that comes just before this, where the priests Nadab and Abihu are, are killed by holy fire because they violate the rules for holy worship that God has given uh, to the Israelites. Uh, so it's underscored by that event. It's going to be underscored as well in chapter 16 by the, uh, by the setting out of the uh, rituals for the uh, Day of Atonement. And, and so in a number of different ways, this is sort of the center of of the book of Leviticus, and as I've, I've uh, tried to argue, uh, central to the theme of the scripture as a whole. Uh, you as God's people are called to be holy, and that is because your God is holy. God is to be reflected, his character of holiness is to be reflected in your life. And I want to think a little bit more about how that happens, what that means, how that happens for you and I as, as God's people. Now, finding this call to holiness in the middle of a, or at the end of a, a chapter that's all about dietary rules uh, can be a little puzzling. And in fact, uh, we... Uh, we, we briefly uh, looked at this uh, at the Wednesday Bible study, and a couple of people raised the uh, very good question, well, how, how do we know how to interpret these dietary laws? Uh, obviously, they're important because God puts them in, in connection with this call to holiness, but, but how do we today interpret these? Are these applicable to us in some way? What, what is the lesson for us? And so I think that uh, those excellent questions need to be uh, answered as clearly as possible. And to to do this, let's let's think about an important principle uh, that was emphasized in the time of the Reformation. And and this principle that, that you can apply across the board to your reading and interpretation of Scripture is sometimes called the analogy of Scripture but, but you might sum it up more helpfully by just saying Scripture interprets Scripture. 
we use Scripture to interpret itself. Now, at the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church is saying to get the proper interpretation of Scripture, you listen to the church hierarchy. Okay, we will give you the official interpretation for Scripture. The Reformers see the latent danger in that because, of course, that interjects human opinion into the equation. And there's no guarantee that the hierarchy of the church is going to correctly interpret Scripture. And so they say, no, that, that cannot be the principle we use in, ter- in interpreting Scripture. At the same time, we don't want to just sort of throw it open for anybody to interpret any way they want. Okay, it's not, it's not to become uh, just sort of open to anyone's uh, interpretation, however they want to read it. So how do we guard against those two extremes? So the reformers said, we use this principle that the scripture is the ultimate authority, so scripture interprets itself. Now that grows out of the character of God, if you think about it for a minute. God is true, okay, he is truth, and so his word is true, and so his word is not going to contradict itself. One part of the Bible will not contradict another part. It is all one truth. And, and so we are given a solid basis upon, to, upon which to interpret a passage with the rest of Scripture. And this will especially be helpful to you when you're looking at a passage that, that seems a little puzzling, that seems a little difficult to interpret. It doesn't seem clear in your mind. Well, that's when you want to be careful to use other parts of Scripture to help you uh, understand that. Use what is clear in Scripture to help you understand what is unclear. So let's apply that to, to this, this passage here with the dietary laws. What, 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 is, what is the point that the Lord is making? Now, I tried to argue last, last Sunday that, that he is pointing the Israelites beyond these outward rules of diet to the principle of inner holiness. Okay, we've seen already that that these these dietary rules are going to separate them from other people. Uh, they, They will be different from those people around them. And in fact, that that word holy at its most basic level means to be set apart. So in a sense, they're being set apart in terms of their diet from other people. And we'll see in Leviticus, they're set apart from other people by other ritual laws as as well. Uh, But the point is not that they are somehow made holy spiritually by their diet. We don't want to get the cart before the horse here. And we noted last Lord's Day that that God has saved them from slavery before this. He's called them to be his people before this. It's not that he said, okay, if you follow these rules, then I'll make you my people. It goes the other way around. He says, because I've made you my people, I want you to distinguish yourselves from others. 
And so he gives them these dietary laws sort of as an external training device, we might say, uh, to, to that daily realization we are to be different. We are to be different from other people. Now, I think we can substantiate this then with the New Testament. So let's go to the second passage that I uh, list in the bulletin, which is Matthew chapter 15. We looked at this uh, some time ago, uh, but this will help us see Scripture, interpreting Scripture here. I won't read all the, uh, all the encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees and scribes in uh, chapter 15, but you'll remember that there was a controversy concerning ritual hand-washing. Now, that's not something that was given to the Israelites as a law in the Old Testament, okay? This ritual hand-washing that the Pharisees and, and scribes are, are upset about the disciples not doing, that, that ritual hand-washing is, is something they developed, okay? There's, there's no such thing in the Old Testament. But it sort of grows out of that principle of clean and unclean food that was back in Leviticus. So it seems that the religious elite of uh, Israel uh, began thinking, well, if, if foods are clean and unclean, uh, well, well maybe, maybe this distinguishing of us from other people, maybe that should be extended. Maybe we should, should have some ways to reinforce that with, with these rituals that, that will render us clean. And so, so you go to the market or something like that and you rub shoulders with a Gentile, well, that's considered making you unclean. And so you do this ritual hand washing before you put anything into your mouth because if you're unclean, your hands will contaminate the food that you eat. And of course, you remember from our look at Matthew chapter 15 that, that Jesus says, you're wrong in this. You're elevating a tradition of your own above the word of God. And in the context of doing this, he points us and his listeners to what is the real principle that we saw back in Leviticus 11. So look at verses 18 through 20 of chapter 15. Here's Jesus speaking to that is his disciples who haven't understood either, and so he's explaining what he means here. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And it's interesting that he's using that word defile because we saw that used back in Leviticus 11. Those, to violate those ritual laws in, the, in Leviticus would defile you, we saw in verse 44. And, and so it's clear that, that what Jesus is saying is that principle back in Leviticus is to point you to that inner purity, which is to characterize you as God's people. So don't make the outward symbol a substitute for the inner reality. So Jesus is telling us that, that we're called to inner 
purity. And indeed, we could go back to the Sermon on the Mount where he interprets the law and see that over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes a law from the Old Testament and he shows its spiritual application. He shows the reality inside a person that the law is pointing us to. So that is the lesson that we're to take from this passage in Leviticus. That God is calling you as his follower to an inner, a spiritual purity. Now, will that make it self-evident in your life? Yes, it will. Okay, and we'll look at some of the ways that that, that, that occurs. Jesus has sort of given us the negative side of it in Matthew 15. He, he's shown what inner impurity results in. Uh, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, and so forth. So, but just as impurity within manifests itself in outward acts, so inner purity will manifest itself in outward acts and thoughts, and thoughts as well. And we'll see that in particular in the first Peter passage that we'll look at in a moment. But let's look at one more application before we get to that in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11, and Peter figures uh, prominently in this incident. Again, we can't look at, every, uh, at the entire context for this, but I think you'll remember it as I, as I review it for you. Uh, there's an incident recorded in uh, chapter 10 of Acts and the first part of chapter 11 that is, is very critical to the formation of the thinking of the early church. And even the fact that a whole chapter and part of another one is taken up with this sort of communicates that idea that this is a very important event. And you may remember it from a previous reading or perhaps even from a Sunday school lesson, the story of, of God uh, bringing to faith a Gentile, not only a Gentile, a centurion, uh, one of the elite of the uh, Roman army in what was known as the Italian cohort. And, and he brings this man to faith, and he chooses Peter to be the one to witness to the work that God is doing in this man's heart. It's, uh, it's not in all a coincidence that he chooses Peter, of course. Uh, Peter, it, Peter is Jewish down to the core, okay? He is very conscious of his identity of, as a Jew. Uh, this incident won't get him quite over that, but it's, uh, it, it's important, I think, to notice that, that God is using this apostle who, who is so aware of his Jewishness to teach him a lesson that incorporates Leviticus chapter 11, in a sense. So Peter is staying at a person's house, and, and you'll remember he gets hungry, he goes up on the roof to rest, and God uses the, that circumstance to give him a vision. And in his vision, Peter sees a sheep coming down with all kinds of those animals that we read about in Leviticus 11 that are off the diet, that, that are not, uh, not part of the diet that God gave to the Jews in the Old Testament. And he hears a voice saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, it's striking that, uh, that Peter says no to the Lord there. 
You know, here is God giving him this vision and telling him to eat something to satisfy his hunger, and, and Peter's basically saying to God, no, I, I think I'll pass. <laughs> I've not violated those dietary rules all my life. And three times he sees that vision. And while he's having that vision, messengers from Cornelius, the centurion that God has awakened to faith, are arriving where Peter is. And so Peter is taken by them to the house of Cornelius. And, and, and notice what he says in, uh, in chapter 10 of Acts. Uh, he's going to sort of elaborate to Cornelius and his uh, fellow, fellow uh, family members there. Uh, and I want you to look in particular at verse 28. Peter said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, notice what he's saying in the context of Leviticus 11. Okay, he, he's, he's, look, he's thinking about those dietary laws in Leviticus 11 that separated the Jews from other people. And he's extended that to any contact with those other people. Now, that was not forbidden in the Old Testament. But Peter is such a devout Jew that he considers even to go into the home of a Gentile as somehow rendering him unclean. And when he has that vision, he correctly interprets God correcting his understanding. This is a different time, God is saying to Peter. There is a new covenant established in Christ, and those old divisions are done away with. This is what Paul will call on occasion the mystery of the gospel. Mystery in the sense of something that was unclear at one point and now is made clear. And that is that Gentiles, as well as Jews, are brought into the kingdom of God. And so, Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The principle that we're applying from Leviticus reflects the fact that God is calling people from all ethnic groups, all backgrounds, to holiness. And Peter gets the, gets the message. Now in chapter 11, he's going to go back, and his Jewish Christian friends are going to say, what were you doing? Hanging out with Gentiles. You know that's not right. And Peter will use his experience to validate his actions by saying, I saw the Spirit come upon these people. I know they were converted and filled with the Spirit just like we are. And those Jewish Christians give them credit, believe what Paul says, I mean Peter says, in verse 18 of chapter 11, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance 
that leads to life. So there's a progression in God's saving work that we see here. Those dietary laws of the Old Testament, those laws of separation between Jew and Gentile, those are set aside in the life of the church. But the principle, the principle of holiness remains. And so let's, let's for, for our last passage, passage, go to 1 Peter chapter 1, and flesh out in our minds a little bit more what the holy living that you're called to is. Uh, really, the whole, whole letter of 1 Peter addresses this theme, but we're just going to look at one uh, particular section of it, verses 13 through uh, 25 of chapter 1. So with that idea of holiness in mind, hear what Peter is saying to us here. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. How do you pursue holiness? Follow Peter's reasoning here. Let's go back to verse 13. Prepare your minds for action. Literally says, get ready for thinking. Okay? He uses the image uh, that the old King James says, uh, translates as gird up your loins. In the time of uh, uh, Peter, uh, men wore long robes when they wanted to run, when they wanted to do some kind of work, they would, they would hitch those robes up and, and tie them up so that their legs were free and they could be ready for action. Well, Peter's saying, do that mentally, okay? Get ready to think. Your faith involves your mind. Okay, you're, you're not to check your, your brain out when it comes to holy living. So think, he's saying. And here's what you're to think on. First of all, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You want to keep that in the center of your thinking. Your hope as a believer 
is that God's grace will be shown to you in its fullness when Jesus comes again. Now, you're already experiencing that grace, right, in in your daily life. You're already experiencing that grace, but the full experience of that is future for you. You are not yet perfect, right? God has not fully cleansed you from sin. You're, you're, You're not free in that sense. You're still in that daily battle with temptation and ungodly influences. But but Peter says, I want you to keep your your mind fixed on that hope that one day that is coming. Okay? So, So in seeking to live a holy life, remember that God guarantees you will reach that goal in his time. It's guaranteed. You don't have to worry, somehow I'm going to fall short in the, in the end, I won't be saved. I, I'll be left out. No, Peter's saying, you want to have a solid, thoughtful hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind then, knowing that's where you're headed, then do this. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That sort of reminds us of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, doesn't it? Don't be conformed by this present world. Don't let yourself be squeezed into the mode of of the culture around you. But, and here he repeats the passage that we looked at from Leviticus, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Remember your calling, okay? God's grace is going to be manifest to you in its fullness when he comes again. In the meantime, your calling is to be holy. That's the essence of your calling as a believer, to be holy, to reflect the image of the one who created you, who is holy. And remember, verse 17, that the one you call father is also judge. And and so there should be, Peter says, an element of fear in your relationship with him but it's a different kind of fear isn't it because it's a fear that reflects on the reality of verse 18 knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot As you seek to live a holy life, Peter's telling us here, as you seek to reflect the holiness of God, remember, remember what God has done to effect that in you. He has has given his son for you. It is the blood of Christ that cleanses you and renders you holy and acceptable before God. That that should should grip our minds. It it should, in in a sense, instill a holy fear of us, lest we dishonor that gift. So, so, So think about the incredible love of God for you that is given his Son, And let that be 
a spur to you, an encouragement to you to live a holy life, a life that pleases him. And he goes on to remind us that in doing this, verse 21, our faith and hope are in God. Your confidence isn't in yourself to do this. You don't rely on your own good, good efforts. But rather, you place your faith, your trust in God. And, and what's the essence of that holy life that Peter is calling us to? Well, I think that's what he gets to in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You want to reflect the holiness of God in your life. Think about this, Peter's saying. Think about loving others as he has loved you. That's really what he's talking about, isn't it? It is a sincere love that we have received from God. It is a faithful love that we have received from God. So if you've been born again, he's poured that love into your heart. He's shown you that love. So the essence of your being holy, of your reflecting the image of God, is going to be to extend that love to others. So, so see, see how that takes us out of compiling some list of do's and don'ts, and rather puts us on that positive track of seeking to show the love of God to one another and to others. He's doing this work in you. You've been born again, and, and notice that expression that he uses here, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Okay, this isn't something that you got through human generation. Okay, this isn't something that you get from your human nature, but, it, but it's this imperishable planting of God's spirit in your heart. That's the imperishable seed, and, and that has been done through the word of God. The word, the good news of the gospel has communicated this truth to you. And so, so here's our calling. To be holy, to be those who love with the love that God has loved us with. And again, remember that he has promised to complete that work in you and fully reveal his grace to you. So persevere in this. It's not going to be easy. There are going to be days when it is not easy to love with the love that God has shown to you. But that's when you rely upon his word and his spirit to feed you and to strengthen you in your Christian walk. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is a great, great privilege and blessing uh, to be called to be like you. I mean, what, what higher calling could there be uh, than to reflect our Creator and our Lord? And we, we confess, Lord, that this is not something that we can accomplish in ourselves, uh, but we do believe your word uh, that promises you can do this in us and through us. Uh, so help us to avail ourselves of the strength that is ours in Jesus Christ. Remind us of the, uh, of the incredible cost that you paid 
to make us your children. Uh, remind us of your, your love and your grace for us. And help us then, Lord, in, in thinking about those things, to be empowered to live lives that bring you glory, that are holy and reflect your holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.